Transcripts and recordings of the podcast may not be used for any purpose without the direct written permission of the podcast owner. Please join us as the Coalition for the Remembrance of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad celebrates its 35th annual Founders Day, Sunday, March 6, 5.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. As the archives for the Remembrance of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, Crow is committed to the Black community and ensuring our voices are heard through Crow TV. Come support 35 years of this important work on Sunday, March 6. Masks are required for entry. Call Crow for details at 773-925-1600. Welcome to Light It Up, a podcast about resilient women balancing motherhood, their careers, personal lives, and all of the challenges that come along with being a superwoman. Each week, you'll be motivated to take action to lead, inspire, transform, and empower. Now, here's your host, Dr. Regina Mashira. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Light It Up. I am your host, Dr. Regina Mashira, and I want to thank you for joining me this week. And I have a very special guest, and I know you guys probably say you say that every week. Well, all of my guests are special. How about that? But this particular guest, we go back 30 years based upon our ages, but we don't look like we're that old. We went to junior high and high school together, the wonderful Morgan Park uh, Mustangs MP High. So I have my dear friend, Miss Janice McCullough, who you all probably know. I know you know her. She's an author. Um, she's a mother, daughter. She's also a speaker and a doula. I didn't know that, Janice. Yes, I know uh, that. Yeah, I got my certification about what four or five years ago. Okay, we're gonna have to talk about that. <laughs> but she is the only child of the legendary Bernie Mac. And I want to welcome you, Janice, to Light It Up Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I was so excited when you sent me the request, like, would you like to be on? I'm like, of course, come on. And I'm so glad that you said yes, too. Um, I was sharing with you. So we go back to junior high and high school. Yes. Um, we're the same age right now because we're both 44, but I think I'm a year older than you because I'll be 45 this year. So I don't know, but, um, <laughs> once we get to the point we are, it's all the same. Right? It's all the same. That's right. That's right. But it's so funny because I remember you as a seventh grader and I was in eighth grade and, um, it's just so amazing how, when you think about, you know, people, when you were young and I don't know if back then, if I even thought about like what life would be like when you get older and will you still keep in contact with the people that you, you know, went to school with. And it just so happens we live in the same surrounding area. Um, and I was sharing with you how our lives are so parallel um, because we both have fathers who belong to other people, I'll just say, because they were famous, right? And um, and I was sharing with you how I don't have anybody that I can really relate to who understands that, but you do. 
And just as <laughs> I may post certain things that may trigger something for you, you do the same for me. And I just wanted to use this opportunity to kind of talk about different things. You know, um, we, and I'll, of course, you're going to give your introduction, but just in terms of um, how you've been able to grow and develop into the woman that you are today. And I think that's so important to be able to kind of share um, with the viewing and listening audience, because when people are looking at you, they're looking at you, this is Bernie Mac's daughter, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, but we'll talk about all of that, but I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself for people who may not know who you are or whatever it is that you like to share. Uh, I mean, you share, let me just preface this. I am terrible with talking about myself. If you ask me a specific question, like tell me about this thing, I can do that. But when you say, hey, Janice, you know, tell us who you are. I'm like, uh, I'm me. <laughs> Duh. Like, so I'm terrible with talking about myself, but I think you did an excellent job. Yeah, I I tend to look at myself in terms of like, what is the most important thing for me right now? Most important thing is that I'm a mom. Um, and that's not to say that that's all that I am. But right now, that is the most important role that I am serving. Um, I'm a mom. I, like you said, I'm a doula. I'm a writer. I am my father's child. I have tried to escape that. I have tried. Lord knows I've tried. And I cannot. So I happily say that. Yes, I'm Bernie Mac's daughter. Let's kind of put that up there. Um, and I just, you know, I... I tend to not put labels on who I am and what I am. And I, I'm just here trying to, one, be the best version of myself, live the best life, and to serve the world to the best of my capacity. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. okay. Very well stated. Well, thank you. <laughs> so let's kind of talk about, um, you You went away to school. You went to Xavier, right? You went to I sure did. XU in the house, yes. That's right, that's right. We visited yeah. Xavier's campus. I, I don't even want to know what Xavier looks like now because the last time I went maybe 10 years ago I was like what school is this this looks nothing like what I so I know I would just be lost like I don't even know the school anymore well we we've got some prospective uh candidates both Ali and Kamal were admitted so we'll see I'm not permitted to say we're okay. going yet gotta wait like that okay <laughs> but you got your degree in psychology or mental health counseling mm -hmm. got my bachelor's in psychology and my master's in mental health counseling okay okay so how, how what was your I guess what was the impetus beside behind deciding to go into the field of psychology I'm always curious about folks who enter the field of psychology so I've always been, even as a kid, I was always that, that person that wanted to get to the core and understand people. Why do you do the things that you do? Why are you the way that you are? Like that was always who I was. And well, you know, cause we both went to Morgan Park. So my dad was a stickler for not letting me graduate early. Like, so by the time we were seniors, I had taken everything. 
Mm-hmm. And I did, and I, I had a major case of senioritis. So I didn't do the AP courses. Like I was like, I just don't feel like it. Mm-hmm. So I took a bunch of electives. And one of my electives was psychology. Absolutely loved it. Like was just fascinated. Like that was psychology and art were my two classes that I was just like, yes, I'm getting up to go to school to do that. Mm-hmm. But I was too afraid to actually major in psychology once I got to Xavier because when I was eight, my aunt gave me a copy of Ben Carson's book. I'm almost embarrassed to say that now in light of events that have transpired. But at the time, reading his book totally just, it, it inspired me so much. And I was like, I mean, I was eight. I'm gonna be a neuroscientist. Yay, that's what I'm gonna do. And so my dad, because education was really important to him and he never had the opportunity to go to college, took great pride in saying, my daughter's gonna go to college and she's gonna be a neuroscientist and that's what she's gonna do. So I felt an obligation to go to school to become a neuroscientist. A scientist. Mm-hmm. What I didn't know at the time is that majoring in, in biology or any science wasn't a requirement to go to med school. Yeah. At the time, I thought, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I got accepted into Xavier, I did the, you know, biology pre med track. And I was like, yes, this is what I'm going to do. But I hated every minute of it. Hated it. And so every year, I would try to figure out how I could transfer because my first choice was Howard. Mm-hmm. That was my very first choice. That's where I should have gone, but I didn't. One, because Howard was in the hood. And even though I'm from the South side of Chicago, I was still a bit sheltered and I was not prepared. But granted, most HBCUs are in, are in the hood. Howard's <laughs> hood was a bit, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know that I can do, oh, you say what now? Mm. So that's scary. I'm not going to lie. I was a little afraid. Mm. And so I, I wound up going all the way to my junior year as a biology pre-med major. And my roommate at the time, she was a psych major. Mm-hmm. And I would come, you know, come back to the room, complain to her. And she kept saying, you need to switch your major. Like I'm, we talk all the time. You're always asking me about my classes. Do it. You, you, can, you can still graduate on time because unlike biology, you don't have to take prereqs. You can take the classes as you need. I was just so terrified to tell my dad because I was like, he's going to kill me. Like he's, he's been expecting me to be this neuroscientist and I'm supposed to be on track for it and I'm changing the game. Well, I waited until the end of spring semester junior year that's when I changed my major I was just like I I I can't can't do it anymore I I just can't and I called home and I told my mom first because I was like I'll tell you you'll tell him and then I won't have to deal with it it all worked out but that's really it was that was always just a love of mine and it just all those turn of events just led me to that thing so once I actually switched my major it was like the the gates of the heavens, the mm. gate opened. It was like, ah, this is what I'm supposed to do. And it just, it helped me not just academically, but just in my life. It's, it helped me heal things within my family. Like I started looking at my family members like, oh, now I get it. And I'm sure looking back then, I probably was that annoying college kid that came home like, 
Freud would say that you, this is what Jung would call, you know, like I'm sure I was psychoanalyzing everybody, but it really just helped me understand people. And it helped me up my compassion and empathy quotient mm -hmm. because I stopped being so judgmental with people and looking at people like, oh, that's how you behave. Oh. And I could really understand, oh no, this is what's going on behind that. Okay, th this is the thing that's happening with that. This might be the possible thing. And it helped me really take myself out of my shoes and put myself in other people's shoes. So that's my long way to answer of how I got into it. And see, even as, as I was listening to you tell that story, I was thinking about my own life and how now my father, complete opposite of your father, was very supportive of my graduating early. So from his perspective, he always talked about like, there's no need in wasting time. You'll have plenty, if you get this out of the way, you'll have plenty of time to live your life and do all of the things that you think you want to do. So he encouraged me to graduate early, but that there was a price that I had to pay for that. So I wanted to attend Hampton University. I was admitted to Hampton and my father and my brother found their way around the Newport News area. He had a meeting and they just decided that they were just going to happen upon Hampton University's campus. Don't know why, but I got a phone call saying you will not be coming here. And it was on the weekend too. So you can only imagine, you know, what was going on. Because I think like on Friday afternoons, um, they, you know, did something out on the quad. So from his perspective, he's like, they're not in class. You're not going to be this far away. You're 16 years old. Here are your options. You can go to Urbana or you can go to UIC. And, you know, during that time, everybody from Morgan Park seemed to have attended Urbana. And I really didn't want to be around Morgan Park folks as an undergraduate student. <laughs> so I made a deal with him. I said, okay, I'll go to UIC, but I have to stay on campus. <sighs> and I did that. But the, um, the plan was I was supposed to go to law school. And I did go. So my plan was to become a lawyer. And I did eventually go to law school. But I think during the time when I was in undergrad, I realized that I had this passion for education. But I didn't discover that until... I was close to, I was in my junior year and I was majoring at that time in criminal justice. I started out as an econ major because I was going to go into business law, but I failed a finite math class. So there goes that. And I switched my major and I was like, I cannot stay here beyond the time that I'm supposed to. So I graduated with a criminal justice degree, but I went back to get my master's in education and what's so interesting is that when I told my father that I think I really want to go into education, he was like, that's a noble profession. And so all this time I'm thinking like, no, I've got to be this prestigious attorney. He's going to look down on me wanting to go into education. And he was all forward. But it's so interesting how we lived most of our lives are, you know, trying to please our fathers listen I'm still <laughs> it, and it's very interesting how it worked for me it, he may have been dead maybe like four four or five years and I had a dream and he was like listen 
I need you to stop trying to live for me. And if you've lived your whole life for other people, it's now time for you to live for you. And I woke up in just in tears, like, like that. Even and I had to think back. I was like, yes, because once he died, I think I put even more pressure on myself mm-hmm. to live up to this. Well, I'm his daughter and I'm his only child. There's no one else. I can't. I don't have a sibling I can turn to and say, hey, look, you take, I did the reins. I held the reins while he was alive. You do it now. It's just me. So yeah, I had to learn how to let go of that. So I completely understand. Yeah, it's it's a burden that I think is so unnecessary for us to carry, but I have not figured out why, like what's the rationalization behind carrying that type of burden of trying to, live up to sometimes we're living up to an expectation that they don't even necessarily have of us but it's what we think that they have of us yes yeah for me it was my dad was most hard on me during my early years Mm -hmm. the older like and in hindsight now I think I, I I do think I I understand it much more um because when he and my mom first married they were good 1977 Mm-hmm. Two 19 year olds get married. He had the insurance money from my grandmother's death because she died when he was 16 and he was working for General Motors. So they were great. Like, yeah, they were good. And when I was about five, he got laid off. And that's that's when the switch happened. And you know, when you're five, you don't know that. You don't know this isn't even about me. This is now about him. I've got a wife and kid. Life has been completely upended. I'm struggling to make it. And when you're struggling, you don't have, you're short on patience. You're short on understanding. It is do, do what I told you to do. Get out of my way. Move. Like it, it's all of that. And so I always felt like when I was growing up, I, I always I used to tell people, it always felt like I had two different dads. Like he couldn't make up his mind which dad he wanted to be. And I think he very much wanted to be a different dad than what he experienced growing up. But one, his dad wasn't in his life, but my grandfather was more the male presence that raised him. And I think he really had the awareness that I want to be something different, but he didn't have the tools and with limited resources that, it was just like when it came down to actually exacting that thing, it was like, man, forget it. I don't know how to do this. I'm about to go with what I know. And he did that. So there was a lot of pressure that he put on me during my formative years. But as things, you know, as the lean times started to become in the distance, that's when it was like, oh, well, now I can let up. And by the time he let up, I was already enmeshed in that, well, no, now I've got to be this thing. And everything was bigger in my mind than Mm -hmm. what it actually was. So that's what happened for me. Well, I think for me, it was, there was a combination of different things. I think, um, obviously, I mean, you know, I, I grew up as a Muslim. So you've got that dynamic of the strict household and things that you can and cannot do. Um, and I was, I'm the only girl and I'm the youngest and my father, (laughs) so my brother is seven years older than me. So it was sort of like, I grew up as an only child. Um, so in my mind, I had to 
he was my competition. He was my competitor. So my brother graduated from high school at 16. I'm going to graduate at 16. Like that was the way my father had it, you know, planned out. And, but he went away to an HBCU and I couldn't. So I think I, I, for a long time, I resented that. Um, and, and so my motivation was to let me prove you wrong. You know, let me prove to you that, Hey, if you would have allowed me to go away and do this, I still would have done X, Y, Z. And so as a result, I've done this, this, and this, and this, like any and everything that you could have asked or expected of me, I've done it. So I wanted to make sure that I made him proud. So I think I was, I was motivated. I I had the self-motivation, but then I was also motivated by competing, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, that, that can that can bring up a whole different dynamic as well too, because it can cause a strain on your relationship, you know, with other people. Like, you know, my brother and I, you know, we didn't really, with the age difference, Mm -hmm. we weren't necessarily close growing up where we talked and, you know, because he was basically out of the house when I was, you know, in high school. And it really wasn't until we got older in fact, it was when I um, was going through my divorce, my brother was the first person in the family that I told that I was going to file for a divorce. So nobody knew. And I confided in my brother who has been married for, I think, 27 years. I don't know. I lost count. Oh, that's a long time. Yeah. And so even with that, with getting married, I was able to um, reflect on the reason I got married, Mm -hmm. the reason I stayed in the marriage. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't until I finally, like I went to counseling because I was like, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. I remember my father, I think I was 22. I bought my first house. And that was my birthday gift to myself. And I remember him saying, what are you going to do in this house? And you don't have a husband and you don't need to be by yourself in this house. So in my mind, that signal, I need to get married. My daddy wants me to get married. Um, And I did marry someone who I thought was, we were friends. I had known him since I was 14 Oh, wow. He was a Muslim. My dad really liked him. Everyone in the family liked him. But I can say now mm-hmm. there were signs, there were flags, not yeah. so much that I, um, more so that I knew we didn't necessarily mesh. We okay. weren't like on the same yeah. um, level. We were probably better off as friends. I'll say that. Okay. Yeah, see, now I'm the opposite. Um, I'm similar in in the sense that when I decided to divorce, my dad was the first person that I went to, which was completely unlike me because the entire reason I got married was because of my dad. So at the time that, because I married someone, I already knew I shouldn't have married him. I didn't even like him all through undergrad like if folks said his name I was like and everybody like what's wrong with him and I would tell them "Hmm, 
Like I, I could my first time, I thought he was cute. And then he opened his mouth and I was like, you should have kept your mouth closed. <laughs> okay. That's what you should have done. Yep. You shouldn't have said a word. And at the time that I, I, I was 21 when I started dating him, it was my last semester of, um, of undergrad. And I, I had broken up with my high school boyfriend and I was in that space where I was like trying to be friends with him, but I was still like, it was that rebound phase. Mm -hmm. So when I got with him, I was like, well, it's, it's like February. We graduated May. I'll never have to see him ever again. And at the time that we got together, I remember like he was uh, applying for grad schools and he was like, I just need help writing my, um, my personal essays. And I was like, oh, well, writing's my jam. I got you, like, I'll, I'll help you. So I helped him. And then once it started coming down to getting acceptance, he didn't get accepted to any school he applied to. But it was all for some strength, like they were like, we got an incomplete um, application. We didn't get your transcripts. We didn't get your letter. And so in my mind, because I was raised Baptist, I'm like, Lord, is this a sign? Mm-hmm. Are you telling me that this is, I'm supposed to be with him, but this can't be him. No, I like, no. So I still had it in my head, like, God, you're going to have to show me something else if this is who you meant, because I'm not with it. So when the summer came, I needed to go home. I needed to come back home to Chicago because my co- I was in my cousin's wedding. She was getting married. He needed to come home well he's not from here but his dad side of the family is from here so he needed to come here because his cousin was graduating and usually what would happen is my parents would never let me drive home Mm -hmm. they would always fly me in and then I would have to be like they had difficulty realizing I'm not a little kid anymore so when I would come home I could say hey because you know Heather, Heather's my best friend. Yeah. She wins more Park. Yeah. So I'd be like, hey, well, can I go out with Heather? Oh, it's eight o'clock. It's too late for you to go in the city. And I'm like, <laughs> are you sick? What is wrong with y'all? It's y'all know I'm 21, right? Are you kidding? And you lived in New Orleans. <laughs> That's a whole nother story because he would call me randomly. Is your house clean, Janice Nicole? I'd be like, is your house clean? Don't make me get on a plane and come down there. I'll stop paying your rent. And I was like, well, you can. And then, and everybody would be like, Bernie Mac's daughter got evicted because she wasn't paying her rent. And guess who that's going to look bad on? You. Like, so <laughs> so it, it was still that, you know, struggle to not control things. So I was like, well, I won't break up with him yet. We will drive. Chicago because then I can have my car and I won't have to be dependent upon them I didn't really think it through because driving here meant he was gonna have to meet them and I was just like okay he'd already met my mom my mom came for a visit and he royally screwed the pooch with that Mm -hmm. he wound up I went to pick him up from work with my mom but he had called his ex-girlfriend and then when I got there, instead of telling, like, and the ex-girlfriend showed up like around the same time as me, instead of telling her, no, he told me in front of my mama, I had to go with her because I call her as a friend and I'll call you when I get home. <laughs> mm. 
So it, you look exactly how my mom, my mom was behind me like, mm. and my mom's little, she's only five. We tell, we give her the five, four. She's five, three and a half, but we give her the five, four. So her little self is behind me like, mm. I'm not gonna say anything, but, mm. but I just, I was like, oh man, you got me out here looking bad in front. Of, I don't even like you like that. And you got me out here looking bad in front of my mama. But because I would not de- admit defeat, I was like, you gonna make this up. You, you gonna have to make this up. So we drove here, my dad met him and my dad instantly was like, Mm-mm, nope. Mm-mm. Now, like I told, I had the same reaction when I met him, but because it came from Bernard Jeffrey, I was like, oh, okay. Well, you saying left, I'm going to say right. How about that? And I was still like, it, it was like, okay. I, Cause my plan was we're going to drive to Chicago. We'll, you know, do our time. I think we were here for like a week and a half. We'll drive back to New Orleans. I'm going to drop him off at home and I'm never going to talk to him ever again. It's a win. Yeah. So I, I was all set on my plan. I drove him home. I went home. I called my parents and said, hey, I made it home. And my dad went on a rant for about 30 minutes about him. I don't even remember everything he said. I just knew it boiled. Like, because at that point, it didn't matter what my dad said. It didn't matter that he was right. I couldn't take it as he was talking strictly about him. I internalized it as you're saying I'm stupid and I don't have enough sense to know who's right for me or who's wrong. So in my mind, I was like, I'm going to prove my father wrong. I'm going, he about to be the one. Somehow, some way we gonna make this thing work. So as soon as I got off the phone with my dad, I called him up. I was like, what you doing today? Want to hang out? And I just, wound up staying in that cycle to where when he proposed I said yes because I didn't know how to say no Mm. so what I did was at the time that he proposed I think I was just starting grad school and so I was like you can't keep me in the lifestyle to which I'm accustomed to living uh with a bachelor's in psychology I'm not really about to be doing much either on that front my parents still take really good care of me. So what I'm going to do is get a master's degree. We can get married after I get my master's degree. So we set the wedding for two years from the day. In my mind, I was like, oh, this isn't going to happen. My dad's going to bust this up. Now, this just goes to show how immature my mind was at that time. On one hand, I'm mad at him for having an opinion about my relationship. But on the other side, I'm like, He's going to take care of all of this. He's going to make sure I never have to get married and it's it's going to be a wrap. So the entire two years, like every all while we were planning, and really it was my mom. My mom loves to plan. So my mom did it. Like I only use my wedding as an excuse in school if I didn't turn in an assignment. Oh my gosh, I'm just so stressed about the wedding. I'm so sorry. But I didn't care about the planning. Um, <laughs> but the entire time, my dad, was like, I don't know what we're doing all of this for. It ain't gonna last but six months. Like, what are, you, what are you doing all this for? So every time he said or did something like that, that just fueled that, well, watch, I will show you. Watch, I'm gonna show you. 
to where when we got to the wedding date, and this is how I knew it was like, Janice, you need to come up with something else. We agreed that we were going to write our own vows. Mm-hmm. Now, again, we've had two years. I had two years to come up with vows. Every time I would look at him, I would just draw a blank, like, I don't know what I could say about you. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. What can I say? To where the night before at the rehearsal dinner, I still hadn't written any vows. Had no, was just like, um, all I had was a sheet of paper with his name on it. And I couldn't think of anything else. So then I thought, okay, what if I go to Hallmark and find one of those, you know, the, the from me and you cards? Those are, but every time I read a card, I was like, this is too, I don't feel all of this. I can't, I can't lie in church to this man like that. Mm-mm, I can't do that. So then I thought, okay, well, let me just go online and let me find some stuff. And like, nobody will know that it's, you know, I'm plagiarizing wedding vows. Okay. Um, but again, they were all too, I'm just like, I wouldn't dare say anything like that to him. So again, this is the night of we've gone through the rehearsal. We've gone through the dinner. It's now like midnight. I'm getting married in less than 24 hours. I still have no vows. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, Janice, you're going to have to say something. What? Like, you need to come up with something. And then it hit me. And I went, oh, Janice, picture you standing in front of the love of your life. What would you say to him? I was like, Yahtzee. And that's how, and I started writing my vows and that is how I wrote my vows. And in my mind, it wasn't lying because I said, if you were standing in front of the love of your life, what would you say? They were beautiful. Like there wasn't a dry eye in the house. I meant them. I just didn't mean them for him. And (laughs) to show you how I had no business doing it. So we get to the day of the wedding and I think, Heather, Tasha, and one of my other my, my other girlfriends from college, they stayed at my dad in my parents' house with us. Heather was the only one. I barely slept. I think I slept maybe two hours. Heather strolls in the room at like six and she looks at me. Have you been asleep yet? I was like, just barely. And she gave me that look like, you sure you want to do this? But she didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, uh, I, I just got to do something else. So later on in the morning, Tasha and Heather and my girlfriend, Kyla, they went to go get their hair done. My mom went to get something to eat. So it was just me and my dad. I get sick. And I don't mean just I'm nauseous. I mean, I am, I'm out of commission. So I try to sneak into my parents' bathroom to see if they have some medicine. I think I'm all clear. And then all of a sudden I hear his voice behind me. Oh, damn. You sick on your wedding day? Oh, like he's just, he starts ripping into me for about 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden he stops and he looks at me and he goes, you know, you ain't got to do this, right? And I like, there was something inside of me that knew he was right. I just wasn't strong enough yet to know that I had the right to say no. I thought it had to be something outside of me to do it. So I, it's my wedding day. I'm supposed to get married in like five hours. I don't know what to say to my dad saying that. So I go, 
oh, he use money, like he, he's money. So I say, well, you've already paid for everything. So, you know, he looked at me and went, I'm rich. We're just having a party at the reception. Tell everybody to just come to the reception instead. Now I'm really like, oh, well, I, nobody had told me that. I, I, I didn't know, but I don't say anything. I just, you know, keep going. I go get my hair done with my mom. We're now headed to the church. And out of nowhere, my mother goes, okay, I know I'm supposed to be happy for you today, but I am not. Oh I'm not God. happy for you at all. I am scared. Janice, I'm scared. I see him and how he is. I see you when you're with him. You're not yourself with him. And I'm just scared. I don't know what else to say. I'm scared. I'm just scared. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm like, oh, shoot. That's both my parents. Uh, so I just... The only thing that came to my mind was just pray for us. If you pray for us, we'll be okay. So we get to the church and I'm really like, I'm real like, I'm going through the motions. Anybody who knows me well should have known she's not herself. I'm saying and doing everything I think I'm supposed to say mm-hmm. on that day. Like, oh, I'm so excited. No, I wasn't. I wasn't excited at all. So the wedding is starting. Everything's going. Heather and Tasha, they were my maids of honor. So they're the only two left in the room. Tasha goes first. Then they come and get Heather. And I remember I looked at her. I was like, dude, you got the rings. And she was like, dude, stop asking me about the rings. I got the rings. Fine. She was like, next time I see you, you'll be married. She hugs me. She walks out the door. Then I hear her outside the door go, wait. She runs back in the room. She goes, hey, dog. The car's in the back. I'll put you in the car. You tell the car to take you wherever you want to go. I will go out front and tell everybody this ain't happening. What you want me to do? Now I'm like, that's three. Oh, Lord, that's three. Oh, my. But the wedding's already started. And again, I did not know that at any point I could have said, I don't want to do this. I didn't know that. So I'm still in my mind, I'm banking on, I won't have to because we're going to get up there and my dad is going to say, no, this isn't happening. And I'm going to be good. Yep. That's what's going to happen. So I just give her the, girl, you're so crazy. (laughs) She goes, the wedding starts. My dad comes and gets me. And immediately I feel sick again. I look like Julia Roberts in Runaway Bride. Like when they opened the doors of the church, I literally stepped back and went, oh no. And oddly enough of all people, it was my dad that was like, no, if this is what you want to do, let's do it. And he said, I tell you what, we're going to pimp walk all the way down the aisle. So when I say pimp it to the left, pimp it to the left. When I say pimp it to the right, pimp it to the right. Come on, let's go. And he was the one who calmed me down and walked me down the aisle. And I was like, okay, for a minute, I was like, I might be able to do this. And then the pastor said, who gives this woman away? And he said, my wife and I do. And I lost it. And if you ever see the video of my wedding, I am clutching my dad for dear life. Like, I don't say the words, but I am clutching him. Like, please don't do this, please please don't do this. And we get through the whole way. And I'm, I'm still at some point, I'm like, at some point he's going to stop it. 
that doesn't happen. I hear, I now pronounce to you, Mr. and Mrs. And we get through the thing. And I remember we got in the car and he was all excited, like, hey, we're married. And in my mind, I was like, what the hell did I just do? Mm-hmm. And that's, and everything after that, by that point, it was no longer about proving my dad wrong. Now it was like, what? I didn't think this thing through. I was so focused on trying to prove him wrong. I'm suffering now. I'm stuck with that. What, what did you do? And so the entire marriage, the entire six years that we were married was me spent knowing this isn't the move. This isn't, mm-hmm. I can't even say like you that we would have been better off friends. He's somebody I would have never even no, we would have never been friends. We would have never, he would have been somebody I knew from college and that would, would have been it. And I spent the whole six years like, I know we're not going to grow together to old age. I know this isn't going to happen, but how is this going to happen? So at one point I was like, is he going to have to die? I'm going to have to be a young widower. Then I was like, well, he's a cheater. Maybe he'll leave me for somebody. And so I was hoping for that. I was like, ooh, let him go find somebody that puts it on him so good that he'll be like, I don't want you anymore. (laughs) And I was like, yes. And that never happened. But what did happen is I gave birth to Jasmine. And something clicked for me then. It was just like, I know I can't do this anymore. And I know I won't be because every time someone asks me, how are you doing? How, how's life? My response was somebody in this house ain't gonna make it. Mm. And everybody thought I was playing. And I was like, no, 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 no. It's not a joke. It's not a game. I mean it when I say someone's not going to make it. And my running thought every day was this isn't good. Like I'm so unfulfilled. This isn't good enough. I can't live like this. Like when I would see his car pulling into the garage, I would sprint upstairs and get in the bed and fake like I was asleep just so I didn't have to talk to him anymore. And I was like, something's wrong with this. Like, why are you living like this? And I remember thinking, I can't live like this. I, this isn't the example that I can put before my daughter yes. because even if she looks at us and thinks my parents are crazy and I never want to live like I, I never want them, it's going to be what she knows. And at some point she's going to recreate it at some point in her life. And that's not good enough for her. And I kept saying that over and over until one day it hit me. Okay, hold on now. We know this isn't good enough for her. Why are you letting it be good enough for you? Mm. We love her. She's awesome and she's deserving of every bit of happiness that life can bring her, but she's no more deserving of that than you are. Right. And that's when it hit me that, oh, I get to say this is, this is okay. And, and I went to my dad. I was, we were on location in uh, LA because I was working for my dad at the time. We were filming uh, Soul Man. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went next door to his hotel room and I said, hey, when we get back home, can you go home with me while I tell him that I want a divorce and I want him out my house because I don't trust him. He had already gotten physical with me before once before. So I was like, I don't trust him to tell me alone. And my dad looked at me and he said, 
I just have one question. Are you really done? And I said, yep. I said, dad, I've had enough. So I'm saying when. And he looked, he said, oh, well, it'd be my pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) And then he he called my mom. He was like, my daughter says she's done. We get him out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. So yeah, so that like, I realized I was like, even in my, in my mind, in all of the, in all of my attempts to get rid of like being my dad's daughter, I even got married (laughs) because I like, Mm -hmm. he still, that's how much he ruled my life at the time. So yeah. At what point in your life do you think that you finally got to the point where you didn't allow the fact that you were his daughter to kind of rule your life in terms of decisions that you make or just how you function? It's happened in spades. So when once I was married, I think I was too enmeshed in the dysfunction and unhappiness of my marriage to really focus on that. hmm but I remember when he got sick um, the final time mm-hmm. and was in the hospital, I remember catching myself one, maybe like week two because we were treating it like a job. Like we were going, like I would drop Jasmine at daycare and then I would go to the hospital and sit in the ICU for like six hours. Mm-hmm. So visiting hours until I had to pick up Jasmine from daycare or I would wait like by week, by the end of week two, I was waiting till she got out of daycare and going at night and staying throughout the night. And I remember though, I would get dressed. Like I was, oh, I can't wear this outfit. I've got to wear this outfit because if folks see Bernie Mac's daughter going to the hospital looking like this, oh my gosh. Like, and I realized then I was like, I am still not past this. Oh, wow. Okay. And, but it, you know, he's sick and I don't want him to die. So that that hadn't, ha- I, I hadn't had the wherewithal yet to go, okay, well, let's deal with this. Mm-hmm. Then he died. And then all of a sudden it was for the first time, because my dad, one thing that I do appreciate about him is that he was very deliberate about keeping me and my mom out of the spotlight. He always said, I want you all to have your own. I want you to be able to walk down the street. I don't want you to have to deal with all of that. So his death was the first time that I had that experience with paparazzi just wanting to be everywhere, folks calling and uh, all that. So that was, the again, it was like a, a re-emergence of Bernie Mac's daughter. Every time I turned around, there was a mic in my face, Bernie Mac's daughter, or there was a phone call, can we talk to Bernie Mac's daughter? And it was that. So it was, it was twofold. It was pride in that I get to talk about my dad but then it brought up those same old issues of, geez, you know, I do have a name. I'm not, I'm not just that, but that just became everything. And then I started, my mom and I started working for the foundation and I started traveling, talking about sarcoidosis awareness and doing that. And it was Bernie Mac's daughter again, and everything was Bernie Mac's daughter. And I found myself getting really resentful. And I, so I stepped down from the foundation twofold one because I just was like this isn't my passion Two, continually talking about his death and his it I was like I'm never gonna heal if I have to keep 
doing this over and over again. So then I figured, okay, once I left this foundation, I was stuck with, now what do I do? Like, what, where do I go? I'm, mm-hmm. I've been my dad's daughter my whole life. And if I'm not his daughter, now folks are just calling me Jasmine's mom. Um, I don't know what, I know I went to school for psychology, but I, I quit my job in 2004 to work for him um he's dead now i'm not working for the fund like what do i do what do i i so if i'm not bernie max daughter what am i doing and that happened in like 2010 2011 and that coincided with like my depression too so it really was i want to say it was about 2013 i participated in the landmark forum mm-hmm. and I, I actually got up, I was one of those people like, ooh, me, me, me. And I remember I got up and I, I shared that. Like, I was like, well, I'm Bernie Mac's daughter and this is an issue for me. And my facilitator, I wish I could remember his name. But towards the end, like, and he was kind, like he listened to me, he was compassionate. But he was like, what about that bothers you so much? Cause it's true. Yeah. You are his daughter. So mm-hmm. why is it bothering you so much? And I, I don't know that anybody, I. I don't know if anybody ever said it that way to me before or if I just wasn't ready to hear it, but it was in that moment that it clicked for me. Like, oh, that's so simple. You're right. How come I had never, oh. And that's when I sat down with, okay, well, why does this bother me so much? And I realized it bothered me so much because I really didn't know who I was or what I wanted to do. Like, Cause you said something earlier about you, you're not sure if you ever thought about like where you would be at that point in your life. And I don't think I ever had to as a, as 13, 14 year old, even in high school, I knew I wanted to go to college mm-hmm. and all that, but I don't think I ever had a plan. Like this is what my life is going to look like. Yeah. So now when I do find myself at this point, I'm, all I had was, I never thought my life would look like this. I never thought I would be divorced at 30. I never thought I'd be raising a kid by myself. I never thought my dad would die at 30. It was all these, I never thought this is what my life would look like. And I had to sit down with myself like, okay, but this is what your life does look like. Right. So now that you're here, like, who are you and where you, where do you want to go? Mm-hmm. And it was only, like I said, around 2013 is when it started. And that's once I started getting more comfortable in myself and my own skin, that's when that, that resentment of being my father's or that, and that, that heavy crown of having to, well, I've got to go out there and represent because I'm his, that's when I started to kind of loosen and let that go. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting um, because I was thinking about what was it about um, being Manir Muhammad's daughter that I'm not going to say bothered me because it didn't bother me per se, but what I do know is with my experience, so with your experience, people were like excited. Your dad was a comedian, an actor. Well, my dad, it it was totally different. Um, I remember I was 10 years old and this is when I stopped. So at 10 years old, I stopped telling people or saying, yeah, Manir Muhammad is my daughter. 
we look just alike, just like you look just like <laughs> your dad, right? They couldn't <laughs> deny us if they wanted to. But I, I will tell you, I remember I was at the Black, um, it was the Black Expo then. So I think they used to just do the Black Expo and not the Black Women's Expo mm -hmm. back in that time. So that was, I don't know, late 80s. And I remember this man walked up to me and asked, was Munir Muhammad my father? And I'm like, yeah. And he said some of the most uh, despicable things. And that was at that point that I realized I couldn't say that I was his daughter in order to protect myself. Mm -hmm. So I always you know, wanted to be protective of myself. And my father didn't, just like your dad, didn't necessarily have you and your mom out in the spotlight. Same thing, people wouldn't know who my mom was, you know, she, mm -hmm. you know, was not in, in the spotlight with him. Um, and people have said to me, I've run into some people, um, I won't say their names, but their dad also is famous and was a good friend of my dad. And they said to me one, one day I was out walking with some friends, ran into the person, um, spoke and because he knew the person that I was with. And he said, I didn't know that uh, you were Manir Muhammad's daughter. He kept you a secret. So meaning, well, he was actually trying to flirt with me, but <laughs> he said, I see why nobody knew. And I said, it was designed that way. I didn't want to broadcast or people to know, because the other thing that I also experienced um, was people befriending me or trying to befriend me in order to get something mm -hmm. because my dad could help them. Yep. And so I never knew, are you genuinely trying to get to know me for me or because you want to get close to my father because of what he could do for you? So I kept, I have a very tight, small circle of people um and so for that reason I never talked about it even when I worked um for Chicago public schools I had the degrees needed to hold my positions but because my father was friends with the CEO people assumed mm -hmm. well you're not qualified for your job no I've got the degrees I'm qualified so always constantly having to explain or prove that I'm worthy. And so it was at that point that I was like, no, I'll just, we'll keep that mm -hmm. under wraps. Mm -hmm. So, so much so when I began working for the University of Illinois, nobody knew who my father was until my father passed away and it was in the newspapers. Oh, wow. They had no idea because it was just that important to me mm -hmm that I didn't want anybody to say, well, now she's back at the university as an em employee because her father knows. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my that, reasoning for, oh, that you know. That's exactly it. Everything, when everything that you do is reduced to, well, you only got that because that's who your dad was. Like any, anything that I did, would get reduced to they only did that because it's Bernie Mac's daughter. I'll never forget in high school, um, in drama class, we had to do a speech. It either had to be a persuasive speech or you had to sell something. 
I couldn't find anything of interest to use to do a persuasive speech. So I was like, okay, well, I'll do a salesman speech. And I was like, well, I'll make it funny. Mm-hmm. So I decided to sell breast implant cream. <laughs> so I blew up the balloons, put them in my shirt. And then I, I remember, uh, I was like, if you buy, if you act now, you get a free uh, backside enhancement cream. And I said something to the effect of like, because a good backside is a great asset to the <laughs> your or something to that effect. And one of my classmates, I won't say her name, but the next day she comes in and she's like, oh my gosh, your, your speech was so funny. I went back and told my aunt about it. And I told my aunt how funny it was and the things that you said. And I told my aunt who your dad is. And my aunt was like, oh, well, that's why it's funny. Her dad wrote it for her. Mm. And I know she didn't mean any harm, but I was just like, so you telling me I can't come up with something on my own? Like, really? And it was that type of stuff that would happen, those little microaggressions that would happen on repeat. And to your point about the guy coming up to you saying stuff, I don't think people understand how rude they are. Yes. People say some of the most outrageous, most ridiculous things to you simply because your parent or someone you're affiliated with is famous. And it's like, it's not supposed to have any effect on you mm-hmm. because, well, he's famous, you get all these benefits from it. So and eh, whatever, and I can just say whatever. So yeah, that was those are all layers for me that was just like, nope, which is why I wanted to go away to a school where no one knew me. Mm -hmm. That was my whole goal. And to this day, I still kind of feel like, man, when I find out the person who found out who my dad was is Xavier, because I made it halfway through my first semester and all the people I was hanging out with had no clue who my dad was. And I loved it that way. I purposefully didn't put any pictures of him in my room. Like there were pictures of my mom and other family members, but I didn't put any pictures of my dad. And I remember we went out one night and we went to Popeye's and we're standing in line and this guy walks up to me and he goes, Hey, you bring Matt's daughter, right? Mm. So I'm looking at him like, huh? And like, and like you said, I look just like him. So I look stupid trying to tell you, no. Uh, <laughs> shit, all of this is him. So I right. can't, so my friends, they're laughing and they're like, man, like if he was Bernie Mac's daughter, you would really be going here. Ha ha. And I'm like, yeah, ha ha ha. I wouldn't tell, I still wouldn't tell them. Hey, remember when that guy came up to us and said, because I, I, I wanted to preserve. It was just nice to have people who were friends with me. Yes. Just because I'm me. Right. And, and then I don't know if this happened for you too. Because for me, it was like, my dad didn't become famous till we were almost out of high school. Like mm-hmm. Def Jam happened. He did the Def Jam the first time when we were, well, when I was in seventh grade, you were in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And then- my eighth grade year is when the second I Ain't Scared of You Def Jam happened. Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is we were still broke. We were still living on 101st King Drive. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember, like, my mom didn't even, like, my mom had to work overtime for them to send me to the class trip to D.C. Mm-hmm. because Def Jam didn't pay. Still, mm-hmm. like, folks knew the jokes, but he, and he was still that, oh, ooh, what's your name? Uh, yeah. Like, 
And then freshman year, he did uh, the movie, um, Who's the Man? And then more movie offers started snowballing in. Mm-hmm. So when I graduated senior year, that summer, Friday came out. And Friday is the thing that just went, mm-hmm. oh, Yeah. But there was this thing that happened even in high school prior to him becoming more popular and famous. People were cool. Like everybody was just like, yay, Janice, okay, cool. And then the more popular and the more famous he got, even the very people who were friends with me, now I find out they're talking about me behind my back. They're, you know, claiming now everybody, oh, she thinks that. And I'm like, but I'm the same, I'm the same person. What are you talking about? So I wanted to preserve that just let me ride this wave as long as I can, because my fear was that was going to happen with my college friends. They're going to find out who my dad is. And then all of a sudden, once they find out who my dad is, they're going to be like, oh, see, and she's there. And it's just going to turn into this ugly thing that I really didn't want to deal with. So I say that. Yeah. And, and, and I was going to say, it still happens even today, even with my dad not being here, I still get people who um oh it's just I I can do a whole episode we can can go on (laughs) and on and on it this August will be 14 years since my dad has passed Mm. and I still get passive aggressive people like even the people like I love like the people who love to name drop and kind of like try to remind me, well, I have all these things and I'm not Bernie Mac's daughter. <laughs> and I'm like, you in a competition by yourself because I don't care. Like you, right? good for you. Like, <laughs> what do you want me to say or do? Like, I can't help that that's my dad. Right. And it, the thing too that people don't realize, just like with your dad, he's that to the rest of the world, but to you, he's dad. Exactly. And I just don't understand why that's so hard for people to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's all I can say is that, um, you know, as you, well, it's been 14 years for you since your dad passed away. It will be only three years for me in July. So it's still, of course, like I mentioned to you earlier, it's still fresh. You know, um, one thing that I can say that I think has helped me a little bit is that my, um, well, my father and I were just like very similar personalities. Um, I always wanted to prove him wrong too. <laughs> but I think what um, what finally helped I, I was able to, at the age of 35 is when I filed for my, what's 35? I think I was 35 when I finally decided, like, I cannot do this anymore. Um, I was afraid to end my marriage because my brother was still married. My parents have been, you know, still married and I didn't want to be a failure, but I also knew before I got married that I shouldn't go through with it and was too afraid to say, nope, I'm not going to go through 
um, with this. But when I finally got the courage to say, you know what, I can't do this. And here, here's the reason why. And um, what's different with, with your, between your dad and my dad, my father didn't want me to get a divorce. And so that caused uh, a strain in our relationship because for me, I'm like, look, I am telling you, I didn't tell you all these years what was happening, but this is what has transpired. And I think I am too good of a woman to deal with X, Y, Z. But for him, it was that thought of my daughter with three children raising them by herself he didn't want that for me and I get it and I understand it and he tried to do things that um I didn't agree with but he tried to do things trying to like I say force me to remain in a marriage or reconsider or what have you just because um he felt like my children needed to be in a two-parent household but I've always said there is no point in having your children in a two-parent household where it's dysfunction in the household or they can't see what a, a, a real relationship, functional relationship. I mean, everyone has some level of dysfunction. So I'm not going to say anybody has like the perfect marriage or relationship or what have you. There, We all, you know, are going to have issues, but there are certain things that if you don't want your children to repeat like a cycle, talk about the generational curse and breaking that. Sometimes you've got to make the decision to cut those ties in order to save yourself so that you can save your children. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That was my dad, because I was like you, the thing that kept me hanging on was I didn't want to be a failure. Mm -hmm. Like I, that would be the first, real thing that I've ever fully failed at and couldn't you know fix like I failed my driver's exam when I was 17 but I went back right about a month or two later got my license so yay like this was one there is no like if I stay I'm miserable but if I leave like as long as I stayed there was this hope that perhaps things could get better and my dad was the one say exactly what you said. Um, he was like, listen, <laughs> it be that way sometimes. And then he told me, you just didn't pick a winner is all. It's okay. <laughs> and he said that he was like, listen, you're trying to stay, you know, for my grandbaby thinking that you're doing her a favor you're not look at what you're showing this is what you would be giving her this is what she would think is okay yeah it's not he was like you'll be fine you're not alone you got me you got family and that's one thing that I do appreciate about him um his message all the time because Heather can tell you he used to get on my nerves like we can say, hey, can we go to the store, you know, for a quick second? He'd say, yeah. And then as soon as we're ready to go out the door, wait a minute, hold on, sit down. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you about these boys. And, and he'd go into a whole like 30 minute thing about men. My dad was always very much like, 
you don't need a man. Like if you want one, fine. But if you want one and you're going to make sure he, like he's going to be in your life, make sure he's up to snuff to be in your life. Like mm-hmm. you don't need a man just to say you got a man. He was like, you know how many men will lowball you just because they can't? Like he was very honest about that, which is why when I met my ex-husband, I knew like you are the exact thing he warned me to stay away from. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, it, it was, it, it took me a while to not, to understand that my worth as a person, as a human being was not dependent upon making something that was never meant to work, Mm -hmm. work. Yeah. And um, for me, that's one of the things that I really appreciate because I feel like my my 20s my dad and I butt heads because we are a lot alike mm-hmm. I used like my running joke used to be I never ever want to understand him because then if I understand him that means he makes sense to me when the truth was I always did understand him because we were a lot alike uh, as a matter of fact Heather like we Heather and I have been friends since we were four I actually met her oh, wow. long before yeah okay. she lived she lived uh, the next block over from my great-grandparents that's okay. how I met okay we have been friends, what, one of 40 years now? Yeah, that's uh-huh. 40 years. I've only been mad at her twice in life to the point where I was like, I want to fight you. First time was when she told me I was going to be the first one amongst our friend group to get married. <laughs> she was right, but I was mad because I was like, that's not what I'm trying to do. And the second time, I think we were like 14 years old. She told me I was just like my father. Mm. And I was like, how, oh, you want to fight? That's what you want to do. Like, and the way I acted, I don't even remember everything I said, but I remember she looked at me and said, I rest my case. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, no, I can't be just like him. I don't want to be just like him. And it was really as painful as my marriage was, it was really in being married that I came to terms with, oh, I am just like, okay, yep, I'm like my dad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as such, okay, let me tell you what I need to do now. I need, and it, in learning to accept me and that aspect of me, I think that was the thing that started to help me to move towards, okay, now we don't have to worry about something outside of us coming to make this change we can now make this change so yeah when you say that like I I understand that that rift that you have with your dad is just the opposite for me prior to his death me choosing to divorce is the thing that kind of brought us together Mm -hmm. but what happened is right before he got sick I don't know. There was just on some level in 2008, I knew my life was going to change. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I knew it was going to be a huge change that I could never bounce back from. Because I remember, like I said, we were in California again. Mm-hmm. We had finished rapping, we had finished Soul Man. Now we were filming a pilot because he had a pilot, a TV show that was going to be airing. And I remember we were in his green room and I looked at him. And to myself, I thought, this is the last time we're going to do this. We'll, we'll never be, I don't, 
I can't tell you I thought he was gonna die, but I was just like, something's gonna happen. We'll, we'll never do this again. So that was around May. I think I had filed like a month before for the, for the divorce. My dad got hospitalized, what, in July? Yeah, the end of July. So that week before he got hospitalized, something just, I don't know what, but it was like this feeling that life is really about to change for you right now in ways that you can't handle. So let's not make it, let's not make the changes too big because you won't be able to deal with it. So I told my husband, okay, we can work it out. Mm. and when I say my dad was like I thought you said you was done (laughs) and I was like because even Heather and Heather was like dude what are you doing and I said I don't know and she was like did you miss him I said not at all and then she said why I was like I don't I couldn't tell you but I just there was this sense that I, I have to do this thing. And I remember like the whole time that uh, like I filed for divorce and my ex-husband was like begging for me to come back. He hadn't spoken to my parents, not one time. So when we decided to like work it out, I remember telling him, you didn't even bother like as a man to go before my dad like hey listen I'm sorry you know this I was like so there's no way I can bring you back in front of my dad without you you're gonna have to take the initiative to like talk to my dad so he called my dad and my dad told him listen here you and I will never speak ever again Mm. I have nothing to say to you I never want to say anything to you ever again don't call me again and he told me he my dad was like your boy called me (laughs) (laughs) and he told me what he said and I knew he was mad at me and I had this overwhelming sense of dread like I've disappointed him gosh and one of the last things we did we all went to see Gladys Knight together as a family minus my ex-husband but Mm -hmm. it was like my mom my aunt my dad and my dad came after us and I remember there was, uh, I think I was sitting next to my aunt. And then when my dad came, everybody moved down to make way for him. And he sat right next to me. And I just like the whole night, I would not look at him. And I could feel his eyes looking at me. And in my mind, I'm like, he's looking at me thinking this so-and-so is messed up. He's so mad at me. He wants, oh, but what unbeknownst to me, what he told one of his friends, he was like, look here, because you, you'll talk to him before I will. Just make sure you tell him, all I want is for him to take care of my daughter and my granddaughter. That's it. And his friend was like, well, no, you tell him. And he said, no, because I won't be here to tell him. Mm-hmm. So he probably was thinking, I'm about to die soon and you're about to put yourself back there. But because in my mind, I'm thinking I disappointed him. That's what happened. And then a week later, he got sick and hospitalized. So I carried that with me for a long time. And then it wasn't until I looked at the dates. So had I continued with the divorce, my divorce was supposed to be finalized August 8th and my dad died August 9th. Mm. 
So then it clicked and made sense. I was like, that's why, because the day of my dad's service, it hit me. My ex-husband pulled me to the side and said, I just have to tell you, you are being incredibly selfish right now. <laughs> he told you that the day at your father's service? The day we put his body away. So we we did two, like we put his body away one day and then had his memorial service the next day. Yes, the day we put his body away, that is what he told me. And he said I was being selfish because to quote him, do you have any idea how hard it is to watch someone you love go through a hard time and you're trying to be there for them and they don't make it easy for you? And at the moment he said that, I remember I chuckled because <laughs> I was like, I got away from you. And then I, so I was like, oh, I know what I'll do. And I think I just chuckled and walked away like, oh, okay. But it clicked for me. I was like, oh, I don't think I would have been able to handle a divorce. Like my, my divorce is final on Friday. And then mm -hmm. shortly thereafter, my dad dies. And now I'm just like, oh my gosh. Right. So I think I needed to tackle that first and then that and. So that's when it clicked for me and I stopped carrying that guilt around. But it it took me a little minute. It wasn't instantaneous. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you that the one thing that I am definitely grateful for, and there were people who were concerned um, that my father and I had made amends hmm. before he passed away. And one thing that my father will rarely do, he has a way of, telling you that you were right without saying that you were right. Mm -hmm. And it finally clicked for him what I had been telling him about my ex-husband. Ah. And he realized that for years, what I had been doing was, um, so one thing that I was taught, you can't make a man a man. Mm -hmm. But it was so important to me, like when I was getting married or, you know, for my family to like the person that I was with and for them to have respect for them, and what have you. So there were a lot of things that I kept from my father um, or he thought that certain things were my ex-husband's idea when it was me who was, you know, um, and so one day he said to me, he was like, I finally get it now. I see what you, what you were talking about. And, and he said in his own way that he was sorry that he doubted me because the way it came across was that I was just so dissatisfied with this marriage that I was just going to blow the whole house up. You know what I mean? And just, yeah. and it wasn't that it was just that I knew I could not. Mm -hmm. go through with that for the rest of my life um so I'm grateful like our last interaction I was at my parents house and I was getting my book out of the trunk of my car because there were some people over and they wanted to buy my book I just released um my book and he kind of looked at me because once upon a time my dad, so my dad used to sell clothes. He was an insurance agent. So he used to sell clothes out the trunk of his car. Mm 
and the books and tapes and everything else out of the trunk of his car. And so when I when I opened up the trunk, because that's what I always learned from him. He was like, you don't ever give a person the opportunity to say no. If you got something to sell, you make sure you have it on you so they can't say no, right? And I was grabbing the books out of, out of the car, out of the trunk. And he just looked at me and he smiled. And then he turned around and he walked back in the house. And I, that was, that was, you know, like the last time that we, you know, not that we talked, but that we were in each other's presence. And I knew, okay, my father is proud of me because he would tell other people that he was proud of me and brag about me. What is it with that generation of men? Like I don't know. I hated that. You and me ran the street. Your father is so proud yeah. of you. And I'm like, he doesn't What are you talking about? Yeah. Yes. And I get yeah. that today. Like I go to different political events and they talk about, yeah, your dad just, all he did was talk about you and yep. would have been nice, you know, but mm-hmm. it, 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 that's, you know, that's how our dads were. And that's how that generation um, was. But I think that the one thing is that they know that they raised some very strong women. Yeah. So, and it will take, and see, we didn't even touch on, we got a lot of, we, we got to do a part two. We can do a part two. We can do a part two. We, girl, we can do this. Because again, I'm just grateful that I can be there for you. Because like you said, it's been three years. For me, I didn't have anybody to talk. To. I had nobody to go through this with. Mm-hmm. So, if I can be there for you, please don't hesitate to like reach out and tell me like I will sit and listen. We can talk and go through this all day because it's like I said, even 14 years later, it's still stuff that like I said, it comes in waves. Right. Yeah. One minute I'll be fine. And then the next, like Jasmine even knows it. We'll be just sitting talking and then we'll see something. And I'm just like, oh, and she's like. You're thinking of pop, pop, aren't you? Like, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I, I always talk about my manierisms. Um, there are times I just had an episode last week where it was a flashback to my childhood. So I used to write my father letters because I felt like I couldn't say what I really wanted to say. So let me write you. Oh was like you can't argue with you can argue with me you can't argue with the words on the paper so right there you go yep right and I had a situation where my youngest who I will often say is like I'm trying to parent me times 10 and she wrote now I did tell her to write me a letter to express how she felt and she wrote this letter and I swear I thought back so when I was, you know, had written a letter to my father, and I was like, did she just put this in this letter? But it was, her words were exactly, it was a phrase that she used. And I'm like, I said that to my daddy in a letter. So it's just, I feel like that's his way of his presence being felt. You know, there are certain things that I know I could say or do something. And I'm like, that's something he, he would do. And it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I actually, I appreciate it now a lot more than I did when he was here. Yeah. So, you know, and I I do tell people, you know, 
there's no time limit on grief. It definitely comes and goes in different ways. It could be a trigger, you know, and then there are some things that you can do that can be very therapeutic that can help you through that grieving process. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I wish someone had told me in the beginning that there's no time limit on grief because that was my problem. I, it happened. I was sad. I cried. And I remember just feeling numb. It like if it was if I wasn't with Jasmine, you know, doing the mommy thing, mm-hmm. I was just numb, just like floating. And then it reached a point where I think it was like nine months or so it passed. And I was like, well, why am I not past this? I should be past this by now. Like <laughs> something's wrong with it. Like something's wrong with me because I'm not past it yet. And that's when I decided to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, like the therapist looked at me and she asked me, Well, what brings you in? And I started explaining to her, you know, I'm like, my dad died, you know, in August of 08. And I'm like, I'm, I can't sleep. I, I don't eat very well. I, you know, I cry at random birth. Like, I'm just explaining everything to her. And it was the first time anybody ever said this to me, but she looked at me with so much compassion and she said, oh, honey, that's grief. Mm-hmm. And, you know, logically, I'm, I'm like, I have degrees in psychology. I know how this works, but I'm not past it yet. And she looked at me and she said, well, how old are you? And I was like, well, I'm 31 now. And she was like, so he was your dad for 30 years. Why do you think you should ever, like, why do you think you would be over that? Why do you think you should be over it? And I tried to answer. I remember going, well, because, and then I just froze because I couldn't come up with anything that made enough sense to me. And I was like, I guess because it just hurts so much, I don't want to feel this hurt anymore. And she was like, that's part of it though. And it didn't make me feel better in the sense that it eased the pain, but it helped me to stop resisting it and feeling like, okay, well now let me hurry up and get through it. And so it's like you said, it's once I stop putting this time frame on it, well, it's been this many years, I should be past it. I just kind of let it be what it, whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. And it got to a point where his birthday, the day he died, the day he got, went to the hospital, like all those dates, those weren't triggers anymore. Cause there were days, there, there were years where with, without me even being aware of it, all of a sudden I'm sad. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how, why am I like, what's going on? And then I look at the calendar and I realize, oh, next week is August 9th. Oh, two days from now is his birthday. Oh, this time in 08, he was in the hospital. Like it was all those things. And I just want just one year it just didn't hurt as much. It wasn't, the melancholy wasn't there. And it was just like, oh, okay, all right, fine. So now I'm at a point where I have to get other people to get where I am because people, and I know they mean well, but they call at August 9th and October 5th, I can count on people calling (laughs) and getting them to understand, please stop doing this. Because I know, like, 
as for as long as I live, I'm going to know what those dates are. But when you continually call me on those that I'm, how you doing? Today is his birthday. We just want, <laughs> you keep me stuck. Right. Yes. And I'm not like, I'm, I, there's a space for me to honor him, honor his memory in his life, honor that I, he's my dad. And no matter what, death can't change that. But I also had to move forward and go with my, I am in the land of the living and I have to live. And to continually stay in that perpetual space of, oh, I just, I can't do that. And so, yeah, that's the space I'm in now. If I could just get everybody else right. to join me on this ride, it would be great. They'll eventually come around. Let's, let's hope. Yes, let's hope. <laughs> I can only, cause it's three years for you. I remember three years. It's still. Yeah. 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 But you know, it, well, the one thing that I will say that has always helped me is that I, as long as I can remember, my father used to always say, the only way to escape death is not to be born. Yeah. And that's just kind of like, I know it has to happen, you know, whether you're prepared for it or not is a different story because my father's death was definitely unexpected. He passed away. He had a massive heart attack at home. So no one could have, you know, predicted it, but like even the, the triggers, I still remember exactly where I was standing and what time I got the phone call. I know what I had on. I can replay that day Mm-hmm. you know I can see it clear as day mm-hmm. and I didn't realize until um Kamal and Aaliyah started applying to college and they were writing their essays that they also they they knew I didn't tell my children initially um I sent them to school they were taking a summer school class and Khalees was in a in a summer camp I just knew I needed my mother was hysterical. I knew I needed to get to the house mm-hmm. and I just needed them to be yeah. able to do what they were doing, but they knew something was wrong. So I didn't do a good job of keeping it from them, but not realizing the impact and you know how it has affected them too is also something. Um, and just looking at how they've kind of developed and evolved and how they look at all of this that has transpired. So yeah. it's a lot. It is. It's, and you never realize that I, I had a similar experience as you with Jasmine, not realizing how it impacted her. Um, she was little, she wasn't even two, mm-hmm. but for me, one thing that was important is that I one talked about him that I didn't like keep that hidden from her because my dad's mom died when he was 16. Mm. No one really talked to me about my grandmother. The most I would hear is one of my uncles would tell me repeatedly how much I look just like her. Like that's all, that's about it. Mm. Gosh, she looked just like Mary. She looked just like Mary. My dad, uh, every so often around March 18th, that was her birthday. He would get a little sad 
Mm-hmm. And then once he started becoming famous, he would say, you know, I wish my mom had lived to see me do this. And every now and then he would tell me, I reminded him of his mom, but no one ever really, I didn't, to this day, I still don't really know a whole lot about my grandmother. But when I turned 16, my dad got some old pictures of her and he got them restored. Mm. And I saw her face and it something clicked for me like, oh my gosh, I do look like her because my dad looks like her, like the three of us look alike. And that's when it hit me like I have this, she's my ancestor and I know nothing about her. And I didn't want that to be the case for Jasmine. And I knew, you know, I'm like, well, you're in a different predicament because your grandfather's famous. Mm -hmm. He's everywhere. Like you see when we're watching TV, I can show there's your grandfather right there. Like, Mm -hmm. so I make it a point to talk to her about him to let, you know, and not just, you know, the fun times. I tell her about, you know, mistakes he's made, things he's done. But she had an assignment uh, not too long ago in school. Um, they were reading the five people you meet in heaven. Mm. And she wrote, like, it was a time she had to write about it. And in it, she said, she likened her, I can't remember the character's name, but she likened herself to that character because the character has experienced the death of someone that they don't really remember. Mm. And she said something to the effect of, I, that's the way that I feel about my grandfather. My grandfather died when I was a baby. And at this point, I'm not sure if I miss him because I don't even know him or if I just feel like I'm supposed to miss him. Wow. And for a split second reading that was like, how could you say that? And then I was like, but wait, how could she? She doesn't even remember him anymore. And I was like, it's the same thing for you. Your grandmother wasn't even born. Mm-hmm. You know, you weren't, she wasn't even alive when you were born. So right. it, her experience with him is different, but it still has an impact on her because of that. And it's not anything that I ever considered before because I was so stuck on well make sure that she knows him you know and all that I hadn't even looked at it from her point of view Mm. that was very sobering yeah I can imagine wow yeah well we're gonna have to make another date to talk about because we've we've got a lot of other stuff that we could dive into we sure do um but I do, I really, this, this was good. This was therapeutic for me. So hopefully it was, yes, was wonderful. I really yes. enjoyed talking to you and you sharing just, you know, your experience um, and, and your relationship with your dad. Cause I know how it can be, you know, like I said, you share your dad with the world mm-hmm. And sometimes folks just don't understand um, how that affects, how that affects, you know, the family. Mm -hmm. So um, let me ask you this before we wrap up, because I know you are, you are writing. So I see your Mm -hmm. articles. Um, You, are you still hosting a show on WVON? Um, So right now I, I'm not like a the main host, but I'm like whenever uh, they need a guest host, they call me. So I 
Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. So we're going to make a date to come back and talk about some other stuff. Just maybe we can get into the whole parenting aspect because that's a whole different. um, Oh, that is. (laughs) Parenting teenage girls. (laughs) That's a whole show. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. But I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join me today. I really enjoyed you. Thank you for your transparency and just being your authentic self. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Seriously, this was this was great. Well, for those of you in the listening and viewing audience, um, you can send some feedback. Let us know what you thought about this week's episode. You can, I think you can reach both of us on Facebook. I'm at Light It Up yeah. Podcast. You're at Bernie's Bernie's daughter. daughter. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so connect with us. We're on all social media platforms. And just continue to um, listen out for new episodes of Light It Up. Join me here next week for another interesting guest. And in the meantime, continue to light it up and shine bright like a diamond. Thanks for joining me this week on Light It Up. Make sure you visit my website at www.lightituppodcast.com or www.ajinamohammed.com. You can also find me on social media using the handle at Light It Up Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, I'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or you can simply tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Until next time, light it up and shine bright like a diamond.